0: section fourteen of the captain of the pole star and other tales by arthur conan doyle this flibrivox recording is in the public domain that little square box part two there was silence for some time in the smoking-room broken only by the crisp rattle of the cards as the man Mueller shuffled them up before replacing them in his pocket he still seemed to be somewhat flushed and irritable Throwing the end of a cigar into the spittoon, he glanced defiantly at his companion and turned towards me. "'Can you tell me, sir,' he said, when this ship will be heard of again?' They were both looking at me, but though my face may have turned a trifle paler, my voice was as steady as ever as I answered. "'I presume, sir, that it will be heard of first when it enters Queenstown Harbor.' ha Ha! laughed the angry little man i knew you would say that don't you kick me under the table Flanagan? i won't stand it i know what i am doing you are wrong sir he continued turning to me utterly wrong some passing ship perhaps suggested dick no not that either the weather's fine i said why should we not be heard of at our destination i didn't say we shouldn't be heard of at our destination "'Possibly we may not, and in any case that is not where we shall be heard of first. "'Where, then?' asked Dick. "'That you shall never know. Suffice it that a rapid and mysterious agency will signal our whereabouts, and that before the day is out. Ha-ha!' And he chuckled once again. "'Come on deck,' growled his comrade. "'You have drunk too much of that confounded brandy-and-water.' It has loosened your tongue. Come away. And taking him by the arm, he half-led him, half-forced him, out of the smoking-room, and we heard them stumbling up the companion together and onto the deck. Well, what do you think now? I gasped, as I turned towards Dick. He was as imperturbable as ever. Think, he said. Why, I think what his companion thinks, that we have been listening to the ravings, of a half-drunken man. The fellow stunk of brandy. Nonsense, Dick. I saw how the other tried to stop his tongue. Of course he did. He didn't want his friend to make a fool of himself before strangers. Maybe the short one is a lunatic, and the other his private keeper. It's quite possible. Oh, Dick, Dick, I cried. How can you be so blind? Don't you see that every word confirmed our previous suspicion? "'Humbug man,' said Dick. "'You're working yourself into a state of nervous excitement. "'Why, what the devil do you make of all that nonsense "'about a mysterious agent which would signal our whereabouts?' "'I'll tell you what he meant, Dick,' I said, "'bending forward and grasping my friend's arm. "'He meant a sudden glare and a flash "'seen far out at sea by some lonely fisherman "'off the American coast. "'That's what he meant.' "'I didn't think you were such a fool, Hammond,' said Dick Merton testily. "'If you try to fix a literal meaning on the twaddle that every drunken man talks, you will come to some queer conclusions. Let us follow their example and go on deck. You need fresh air, I think. Depend upon it. Your liver is out of order. A sea voyage will do you a world of good.' "'If I ever see the end of this one,' I groaned. "'I promise never to venture on another.' "'They are laying the cloth, so it is hardly worth my going up. "'I'll stay below and unpack my things.' "'I hope dinner will find you in a more pleasant state of mind,' said Dick, "'and he went out, leaving me to my thoughts "'until the clang of the great gong summoned us to the saloon. "'My appetite, I need hardly say, "'had not been approved by the incidents which had occurred during the day.' I sat down however mechanically at the table and listened to the talk which was going on around me there were nearly a hundred first-class passengers and as the wine began to circulate their voices combined with the clash of the dishes to form a perfect babble i found myself seated between a very stout and nervous old lady and a prim little clergyman and as neither made any advances i retired into my shell and spent my time in observing the appearance of my fellow voyagers. I could see Dick in the dim distance, dividing his attentions between a jointless fowl in front of him and a self-possessed young lady at his side. Captain Dowie was doing the honors at my end, while the surgeon of the vessel was seated at the other. I was glad to notice that Flanagan was placed almost opposite to me. As long as I had him before my eyes, I knew that, for the time at least, we were safe. He was sitting with what was meant to be a sociable smile on his grim face. It did not escape me that he drank largely of wine, so largely that even before the dessert appeared his voice had become decidedly husky. His friend Mueller was seated a few places lower down. He ate little and appeared to be nervous and restless. Now, ladies, said our genial captain, I trust that you will consider yourselves at home aboard my vessel. I have no fears for the gentlemen. A bottle of champagne, steward. Here's to a fresh breeze and a quick passage. I trust our friends in America will hear of our safe arrival in eight days or in nine at the very latest. I looked up, quick as was the glance which passed between Flanagan and his confederate. I was able to intercept it. There was an evil smile upon the former's thin lips. The conversation rippled on. Politics to sea, amusement, religion, each was in turn discussed. I remained a silent, though an interested listener. It struck me that no harm could be done by introducing the subject which was ever in my mind. It could be managed in an offhand way, and would at least have the effect of turning the captain's thoughts in that direction. I could watch, too, what effect it would have upon the faces of the conspirators. There was a sudden lull in the conversation. The ordinary subjects of interest appeared to be exhausted. The opportunity was a favorable one. "'May I ask, Captain?' I said, bending forward and speaking very distinctly, what you think of the Fenian manifestos. The captain's ruddy face became a shade darker from honest indignation. "'They are poor, cowardly things,' he said, "'as silly as they are wicked.' The impotent threats of a set of anonymous scoundrels Said a pompous-looking old gentleman beside him. "'Oh, Captain,' said the fat lady at my side, "'you don't really think they would blow up a ship?' "'I have no doubt they would if they could, "'but I am very sure they shall never blow up mine.' may i ask what precautions are taken against them asked an elderly man at the end of the table all goods sent aboard the ship are strictly examined said captain dowie but suppose a man brought explosives aboard with him i suggested they're too cowardly to risk their own lives in that way during this conversation flanagan had not betrayed the slightest interest in what was going on he raised his head now and looked at the captain don't you think you are rather underrating them, he said every secret society has produced desperate men. Why shouldn't the Fenians have them too? Many men think it a privilege to die in the service of a cause which seems right in their eyes, though others may think it wrong. Indiscriminate murder cannot be right in anybody's eyes, said the little clergyman. The bombardment of Paris was nothing else, said Flanagan. Yet the whole civilized world agreed to look on with folded arms and change the ugly word murder into the more euphonious one of war it seemed right enough to germanize why shouldn't dynamite seem so to the fenian at any rate their empty vaporings have led to nothing as yet said the captain excuse me returned Flanagan. but is there not some room for doubt yet as to the fate of the dotterel? I have met men in America who asserted, from their own personal knowledge, that there was a coal torpedo aboard that vessel. Then they lied, said the captain. It was proved conclusively at the court-martial to have arisen from an explosion of coal gas. But we had better change the subject, or we may cause the ladies to have a restless night. And the conversation once more drifted back into its original channel." During this little discussion, Flanagan had argued his point with a gentlemanly deference and a quiet power for which I had not given him credit. I could not help admiring a man who, on the eve of a desperate enterprise, could courteously argue upon a point which must touch him so nearly. He had, as I have already mentioned, partaken of a considerable quantity of wine but though there was a slight flush upon his pale cheek, his manner was as reserved as ever. He did not join in the conversation again, but seemed to be lost in thought. A whirl of conflicting ideas was battling in my own mind. What was I to do? Should I stand up now and denounce them before both passengers and captain? Should I demand a few minutes' conversation with the latter in his own cabin and reveal it all? For an instant... I was half-resolved to do it, but then the old constitutional timidity came back with a redoubled force. After all, there might be some mistake. Ticket heard the evidence and had refused to believe in it. I determined to let things go on their course. A strange, reckless feeling came over me. Why should I help men who were blind to their own danger? Surely it was the duty of the officers to protect us Not ours to give warning to them. I drank off a couple of glasses of wine and staggered upon the deck with the determination of keeping my secret locked in my own bosom. It was a glorious evening. Even in my excited state of mind, I could not help leaning against the bulwarks and enjoying the refreshing breeze. Away to the westward, a solitary sail stood out as a dark speck against the great sheet of flame left by the setting sun i shuddered as i looked at it it was grand but appalling a single star was twinkling faintly above our mainmast but a thousand seemed to gleam in the water below with every stroke of our propeller the only blot in the fair scene was the great trail of smoke which stretched away behind us like a black slash upon a crimson curtain it was hard to believe that the great peace which hung over all nature could be marred by a poor miserable mortal. After all, I thought, as I gazed into the blue depths beneath me, if the worst comes to the worst, it is better to die here than to linger in agony upon a sick bed on land. A man's life seems a very paltry thing amid the great forces of nature. All my philosophy could not prevent my shuddering, however when I turned my head and saw two shadowy figures at the other side of the deck, which I had no difficulty in recognizing. They seemed to be conversing earnestly, but I had no opportunity of overhearing what was said, so I contented myself with pacing up and down and keeping a vigilant watch upon their movements. It was a relief to me when Dick came on deck, even an incredulous confidant is better than none at all. "'Well, old man,' he said, giving me a facetious dig in the ribs. we not been blown up yet.' "'No, not yet,' said I. "'But that's no proof that we're not going to be.' "'Nonsense, man,' said Dick. "'I can't conceive "'what has put this extraordinary idea into your head. "'I have been talking to one of your supposed assassins, "'and he seems a pleasant fellow enough. "'Quite a sporting character, I should think.' from the way he speaks. "'Dick,' I said, "'I am as certain "'that those men have an infernal machine "'and that we are on the verge of eternity, "'as if I saw them putting the match to the fuse.' "'Well, if you really think so,' said Dick, "'half-awed for the moment "'by the earnestness of my manner. "'It is your duty to let the captain know of your suspicions.' "'You are right,' I said. "'I will. "'My absurd timidity... Has prevented me from doing so sooner i believe our lives can only be saved by laying the whole matter before him well go and do it now said dick but for goodness sake don't mix me up in the matter i'll speak to him when he comes off the bridge i answered and in the meantime i don't mean to lose sight of them let me know of the result said my companion and with a nod he strolled away in search i fancy of his partner at the dinner-table. Left to myself, I bethought me of my retreat of the morning, and climbing on the bulwark I mounted into the quarter-boat, and lay down there. In it I could consider my course of action, and by raising my head I was able at any time to get a view of my disagreeable neighbors. An hour passed, and the captain was still on the bridge. He was talking to one of the passengers, a retired naval officer, and the two were in deep debate concerning some obtruse-pointed navigation. I could see the red tips of their cigars from where I lay. It was dark now, so dark, that I could hardly make out the figures of Flanagan and his accomplice. They were still standing in the position which they had taken up after dinner. A few of the passengers were scattered about the deck but many had gone below. A strange stillness seemed to pervade the air. The voice of the watch and the rattle of the wheel were the only sounds which broke the silence. Another half-hour passed. The captain was still upon the bridge. It seemed as if he would never come down. My nerves were in a state of unnatural tension, so much so that the sound of two steps upon the deck made me start up in a quiver of excitement. I peered over the edge of the boat and saw that our suspicious passengers had crossed from the other side and were standing almost directly beneath me. The light of the binnacle fell full upon the ghastly face of the ruffian Flanagan. Even in that short glance, I saw that Mueller had the ulster, whose use I knew so well, slung loosely over his arm. I sank back with a groan. It seemed that my fatal procrastination had sacrificed two hundred innocent lives. I had read of the fiendish vengeance which awaited a spy. I knew that men, with their lives in their hands, would stick at nothing. All I could do was to cower at the bottom of the boat and listen silently to their whispered talk below. This place will do, said a voice. Yes, the leeward side is best. I wonder if the trigger will act. I'm sure it will. We were to let it off at ten, were we not? Yes, at ten sharp. We have eight minutes yet. There was a pause. Then the voice began again. They'll hear the drop of the trigger, won't they? It doesn't matter. It will be too late for anyone to prevent its going off. That's true. There will be some excitement among those we have left behind, won't there? Rather... How long do you reckon it will be before they hear of us? The first news will get in at about midnight at earliest. That will be my doing. No, mine. Ha-ha, we'll settle that. There was a pause here. Then I heard Mueller's voice in a ghastly whisper. There's only five minutes more. How slowly the moments seemed to pass. I could count them by the throbbing of my heart. "'It'll make a sensation on land,' said a voice. "'Yes, it will make a noise in the newspapers.' I raised my head and peered over the side of the boat. There seemed no hope, no help. Death stared me in the face, whether I did or did not give the alarm. The captain had at last left the bridge. The deck was deserted, save for those two dark figures crouching in the shadow of the boat. Flanagan... "'had a watch lying open in his hand. Three minutes more,' he said. "'Put it down upon the deck. "'No, put it here on the bulwarks.' "'It was the little square box. "'I knew by the sound "'that they had placed it near the davit, "'almost exactly under my head. "'I looked over again. "'Flanagan was pouring something out of a paper "'into his hand. "'It was white and granular, "'the same that I had seen him use in the morning.' It was meant as a fuse, no doubt, for he shoveled it into the little box. I heard the strange noise which had previously arrested my attention. A minute and a half more, he said, shall you or I pull the string? I will pull it, said Mueller. He was kneeling down and holding the end in his hand. Flanagan stood behind him with his arms folded and an air of grim resolution upon his face. I could stand it no longer. My nervous system seemed to give way in a moment. Stop, I screamed, springing to my feet. Stop misguided and unprincipled men. They both staggered backwards. I fancy they thought I was a spirit, with the moonlight streaming down upon my pale face. I was brave enough now. I had gone too far to retreat. Kane was damned, I cried, and he slew but one. "'Would you have the blood of two hundred upon your souls?' "'He's mad,' said Flanagan. "'Time's up. Let off, Mueller.' I sprang down upon the deck. "'You shan't do it,' I said. "'By what right do you prevent us?' "'By every right, human and divine. "'It's no business of yours clear out of this.' "'Never,' said I. "'Confound the fellow. "'There's too much at stake to stand on ceremony. "'I'll hold a Mueller while you pull the trigger.' "'Next moment.' I was struggling in the herculean gasp of the Irishman resistance was useless I was a child in his hands he pinned me up against the side of the vessel and held me there now he said look sharp he can't prevent us I felt that I was standing on the verge of eternity half strangled in the arms of the taller ruffian I saw the other approach the fatal box he stooped over it and seized a string I breathed one prayer when I saw his grasp tighten upon it. Then came a sharp snap, a strange, rasping noise. The trigger had fallen. The side of the box flew out and let off. Two gray carrier pigeons. Little more need be said. It is not a subject on which I care to dwell. The whole thing is too utterly disgusting and absurd. Perhaps the best thing I can do is retire gracefully from the scene and let the sporting correspondent of the new york herald fill my unworthy place here's an extract clipped from its columns shortly after our departure from america pigeon flying extraordinary a novel match has been brought off last week between the birds of john h flanagan of boston and jeremiah Mueller, a well-known citizen of lowell both men "'have devoted much time and attention "'to an improved breed of bird, "'and the challenge is an old-standing one.' "'The pigeons were back to a large amount, "'and there was considerable local interest in the result. "'The start was from the deck "'of the transatlantic steamship Spartan "'at ten o'clock on the evening of the day of starting, "'the vessel being then reckoned "'to be about a hundred miles from the land. "'The bird which reached home first was to be declared the winner. Considerable caution had, we believe, to be observed, as some captains have a prejudice against the bringing off of sporting events aboard their vessels. In spite of some little difficulty at the last moment, the trap was sprung almost exactly at ten o'clock. Muller's bird arrived in Lowell, in an extreme state of exhaustion, on the following morning, while Flanagan's has not been heard of. The backers of the latter have the satisfaction of knowing, however, that the whole affair has been characterized by extreme fairness. The pigeons were confined in a specially invented trap which could only be opened by the spring. It was thus possible to feed them through an aperture in the top, but any tampering with their wings was quite out of the question. A few such matches would go far towards popularizing pigeon flying in America and form an agreeable variety to the morbid exhibition of human endurance which have assumed such proportions during the last few years end of section fourteen